Sport Calgary members have access to resources such as marketing on social media, blog entries, features, and placement on the events listing. Become a member. It's easy and free. Visit www.sportcalgary.ca slash members. Oh, buckle up, kids. This is going to be a good one. Oh, boy. Uh, So much, so much, so much fun. Uh, Welcome, 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 welcome to the original Six Feet Conversation podcast. Um, I am your host, Rob Kerr, uh, your podcasting friend. That's that's I like to think of us as friends. I hope you're okay with that. Um, Glad you could join us. Uh, Hope you've been enjoying the conversations today. A media slash hockey based conversation. Full disclosure, dear friend of mine. Dear, dear friend of mine, um, I've known this man, I've known of this man for a long time, decades. I've known this man for almost two decades now personally, and I think he's uh, truly one of the smartest guys in the media. I think he's one of the smartest guys around hockey, and Eric DeHatchuk is, uh, is just a great guest. I'm here to tell you, he is an absolute great guest. We did this for many, many years on the old radio station. Um, but what we didn't talk as much about was, was Eric's story, and we do here. And he, we really kind of get in, into the weeds a bit on the media side of things and how uh, COVID and, and just, you know, where the media is at in terms of sports and, and how much, I think, how much we, we kind of miss long form, which is what our, Eric does right now for The Athletic. If you haven't checked out The Athletic, it's, it's been a godsend for many of us sports fans because it's the return to long form reporting and writing. And quite honestly, I'm a big fan of it. Um, Okay, so let's get to that. Hold on before we do that, though, folks, because I do have to remind you, Sport Calgary assists, supports, and influences the growth of sport in Calgary. As the voice of sport in Calgary, we connect Calgarians and sport. All right, settle down, turn it up, crank it up. A little bit of music in here. Um, A little bit, you know, we, hey, we get raw. Absolutely. With Eric DeHatchuk from The Athletic. Well, for what it's worth, I've already hit record, so we can pick it up wherever you want. And I guess sure, I mean, exactly. the, the, the yeah. most logical place is, so how are you doing now that we move into the second month of this? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, like it, it, it's been a very uh, interesting and challenging time as it is, as it is for everyone else. But I, but I will tell you this, that, um, that you know, I, I work this way most of the time anyway. So a, a lot of the, the way that I conduct my business uh, at the athletic and, and for everything else I do is at my desk in my house, speaking to people on the phone, you know, texting people, contacting people. And um, so, you know, as opposed to the days when I was a, a beat writer, when I was at the rink constantly, you know, I, I mean, I miss going to the rink, but, but I only ever made it down there a handful of times a, a week. So as a, you know, a, a lot of other people in a lot of other industries are really having a hard time adjusting to working at home but for me, it's it's pretty normal. So I would say that it hasn't really been that um, challenging a time. And, and in fact, you know, there have been some positives because because everybody else is at home, too. So as opposed to, you know, like trying to run people down and they're busy, busy, busy in their lives. There's an awful lot of people who are actually answering their phones, Rob. It, it <laughs> doesn't happen very much anymore or it didn't until now. Well, it. I, I just because you're one of the most reflective people I know prior to this. And I would say, geez, maybe two weeks before the shutdown, you had just written a piece in The Athletic about the way access used to be and the relationships and and those types of things. And I honestly I can't help but think about you every time I see the league or a team trot out players and make them available right now. 
Yeah, well, no, it's funny. I, I didn't saw, you know, I watched uh, Gary Bettman's interview with Ron McLean last week, and and Bettman was making that point, with, you know, which was, you know, like, a, you know, people are starting to see our players' personality. I wanted to shout at the television screen, but you're the one that's that's, that's reining them in, you know. So, but no, you're right. Uh, my, I guess, yeah, my point was that um, that you know th things were different, um, things were better, which is what a lot of old people say. But I also felt that uh, that there was a that that fans were being cheated a little bit because like and then you're seeing it on the Zoom calls with players right now. They have personalities yeah. and they're allowing yeah. their personalities to show through, and that doesn't generally happen in sort of the scrum journalism that we see nowadays. And you know, I, I just think about those first Zoom calls. You know. Ryan Getzlaff is taking people out to his backyard to examine the chicken coop that he's built. You know, as a writer, you you, you think, oh, great. See, that's what you want. You, you want color. You want insights into their personality. When when I was traveling with a team in the 80s because we were on the, on the, on the commercial flights with them, you know, we were waiting for our bags at the luggage carousel. They would tease you. You would tease them. It felt more like a human relationship. And that has really been, you know, disappearing gradually over time. And, and I do feel that a little bit of what we're seeing right now is more of the personalities returning. I think the players seem to be more aware of all of the people around them. I mean, you know, as a hockey player up until now, you live in this bubble, right? You know, somebody hands you a boarding pass. Somebody has scheduled a meal for you. Somebody has told you when you're going to have a nap. You're, all of your thinking is done for you. And I think the fact that these players now have to scramble and, and figure things out for themselves, I, I think they're becoming more well-rounded people. I think this is this is going to help them. And, and, and generally, when people become you know, more introspective and, and, and think deeper thoughts that, you know, that makes them better people. And, and, and maybe relationships will seem more real rather than kind of the canned back and forth relationships that have evolved in, in sort of modern, modern NHL. But is it the, is it the new reality or is it an element of an elastic band? Does it, does it, you know, retract back to where it, where it was when everything kind of shakes out, we were, you know, go to some, whatever some semblance of normal is. I mean, it could, obviously that that's the other side of it. You know, like you, you may think that, uh, that sort of the new world and, uh, and everybody, you know, I, I do think that, that, you know, once whatever normalcy, as you suggest yeah. returns, there will be an initial honeymoon period, you know, players will be happy to see the writers, the writers will be happy to see the players. Everyone will be, you know, uh, that there will be a period of time when, when, you know, something new has occurred. But then, you know, again, the rhythm of the season starts and it becomes a routine and and it gets hard again. And and and, and maybe maybe very easily, uh, you know, they could lose interest and, and go back to the way things were. I don't know. Like it, it's impossible to forecast. I mean, you make a great, you know, your question, uh, you know, implies a lot with this. You know what is the new normal going to look like, yeah. um, and and how is the industry going to change? And I, I think it's going to shift and change in, in many ways, and, and a lot of them will it will be based on the finances and the fact that the you know the finances are going to shrink considerably. But even you know the the notion of uh, of, of going to a game and sitting beside a stranger in in a in a stadium that seats twenty thousand, you know what will be people's comfort level with doing that? I mean, you know me, Rob. I'm a music guy. Yep. And, and I got to thinking the other day, have I seen my last concert? Have I seen my last concert? And and, and I had to think about it. What, at what point 
am I prepared to go out and, and watch a live concert? I never thought about it before. Like every opportunity I had in my life to go out and see live music, I would take it. And, and am I going to fundamentally shift my behavior because I'm getting older and I do have some pre-existing conditions? It's possible that I might never see another live concert in my life. And, and, and so if I'm thinking those thoughts, I wonder how many people are also thinking the same thing about sports events. And will you ever feel comfortable again being in a crowded arena? And, and if not... You know what then? What what does that mean for uh, for the future of the National Hockey League and every other league underneath the National Hockey League that relies on people coming into the buildings and 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 watching the product on the ice? I, I do want to come back and address that because I, I that's a fascinating I think path to go down. But the one thing I do want to ask you though before we get there is. What are the lessons learned from the past lockouts? Now, I don't want to suggest for a second that this is the same equivalent of a lockout, not at all. But from a work standpoint, from a, a you know the the things that we think during that absence, and in, in the case of the lockout, it was hockey. What did we learn from that? How, how did how did it affect how we report and, and cover what's going on now? I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, when, when I thought about the NHL lockout, to me, like, the, the, the biggest difference, and I don't know if this necessarily answers your question, it probably doesn't, but the biggest difference in, in, in the lockouts is that there was still other sports going on, right? Correct. So, for example, yeah. I, I, cover, I primarily cover the National Hockey League. So in 2004, 2005, no hockey going on. You know, did a little bit more of the European leagues, did a little bit more of a junior, went on a tour, like went went to Switzerland for a week and spent time with Danny Heatley and, and Daniel Briere and Rick Nash and Joe Thornton. And then I went to Sweden and, and spent time with the Sedins and Brendan Morrison and Mike Knubel and, and all those players that were over there. But while that was, the NBA was still going on, the, you know, all, all the other traditional things on the sports calendar were still going on. And so there, there were options for, uh, for viewers, it, you know, yeah, you might be a hockey fan, but you know, maybe you're, you're, you're watching college basketball now for the first time or, or something else. Whereas now everything has ground called and the entire sports landscape has disappeared. And I think it's forcing people to reflect on how important sports is in, in their lives. And in terms of, of, of going forward, so, you know, lots of people are watching Netflix. I'm listening to, you know, all my old records and, and, uh, yep. and tapes and CDs. Um, what, I, I don't know what will happen when, once sports returns. There's a part of me that thinks that there will be, like, like if, if the NHL does play playoff games this summer, you know, like will people watch? Yeah. Normally what happens as the playoffs go along and it gets into June. If your team is in it, you're crazy, happy, excited about it. But a lot of people tune out and they're playing golf or doing some other things. Maybe maybe there'll be record television ratings. Maybe people will be so will have missed the, the game and the industry so much that they'll they'll be riveted. They'll be sitting in front of, of the televisions and there won't be that sort of drop-off in interest. But people will, will stay with it the whole time. And to be honest with you, that's a long answer. I don't know the answer to it. I, I, but I do think it's going it, it's, it's to change fundamentally. And there is a part of me that thinks that thinks NHL, if, if they have playoffs, will do record television numbers for, for the game. Yeah, but I think there's I think there's already evidence that that's going to be the case. If you look at what happened with the NFL draft, I mean, the Disney sold out all of the advertising. You know, they got you know relatively record numbers. I think there's an appetite for it. Where where do you come down on? And your point is a good one about you know you can't really compare it because a lockout there was other things going on, but because there's nothing going on, we've kind of seen this dearth of 
of old games and, you know, old games from this year, old games from decades ago. Um, here we are now a little further into it. Has any of that caught your attention? Has that had any impact on you? <laughs> well, I have to say, I rewatched uh, uh, those uh, those playoff games uh, in 1991, game six and game seven between the Flames and the Oilers, because uh, you know they happen to be on. I think with Dodgers, and uh, and I, of course I covered those games. Yeah. And 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 it's it's interesting, Rob, because uh, it, the things you remember and the things you don't remember. So, for example. You know, in the deciding game seven, I knew exactly when the winning goal was coming. I, I, I remembered it, you know, like from my sightline in the press box, peeking off shoots off the shaft of Frank Musil's stick, fools Vernon goes in. I, I, you know, at, at the precise moment he was there, it was like, here he comes, right? So that I remember precisely. But I had forgotten that Ron Stern was the guy that tied the game with a couple of minutes to go in, uh, in, in regulation because that was the game where they were up 3-0, fell behind, 4-3, forced overtime, and then, you know, of course lost and uh you know like that was really the beginning of the end for that uh, that collection because you know I, I i do believe they should have won that series and i do believe if they had won that series they would have won the cup that year too and so um so it's amazing how how one small moment and one you know like again you know the deflection and it changes uh the, the direction of the shot and and um you know and, and you know all of a sudden everything is different right so uh so yeah, I, it has caught my attention. I watched a little bit of uh, Chicago Vancouver of the 2011 series that they were showing last night and uh, happened to catch the game where Chicago just clobbered them. And if you looked at that game in isolation, you'd say to yourself, okay, how did Vancouver ever get to the Stanley Cup final in, in, in 2011? Because they weren't very good that night and the Blackhawks were tremendous. They looked like the, the team that had won the Stanley Cup the year before. And, you know, they gave them a pretty good run and, uh, you know, I may actually tune in and watch a little bit more of that if they, that was game four. So I'm going to guess that they were going to show other games in that series. So there's a certain amount of that that I'm watching. Um, but again, a lot of it is filtered through my own experience. And, and my guess is that might be the case for sports fans too. Like if you're a Flames fan, do you want to watch game seven? I can understand why you want to watch game six to watch that Theo Fleury celebration. But, yeah. but game seven, boy, that was a, that was a, a gut wrencher. <laughs> I, I got to be honest with you, Eric. The only thing that two things. One, it was great to watch the '89 series again because of all of the great alumni we have in this city and getting to know them and and sharing a stage with them on so many occasions and telling those stories. And and uh, the one thing that jumps out at me watching '89 again was how good Montreal was and how how talented and stacked that team was with good young players. Like that was a real eye opener. And, and the other one was um, watching the Expos again. They keep throwing Expos games on. And and it's just, you know, for whatever reason, none of the other stuff seems to resonate. But be able to go back and watch some Expos baseball has been kind of fun. See, and, and that again, that speaks to your experience, right? Yep. So I'm, I I don't consider myself a baseball guy. Um, other sports that I'm interested in watching are like maybe you referenced the NFL draft. I had I put the NFL draft on that night because I was interested in seeing the format. Yes, not necessarily in seeing who lands where because you know I'm just not familiar enough with. Uh, with those players coming through. I'd read some of the mock drafts on our website at the athletic, but otherwise I hadn't really paid that much attention. And and I had it on from start to finish. And uh, it was, it was, you know, it, it caught my attention. And, and partly it was because, as I say, I do like the NFL and I watch the NFL on, on Sunday afternoon. So, you know, and that's probably what will happen when, when sports comes back. If you were a fan of, of something before, you may become a, an even more rabid fan of, of that sport again. So just to stay on that topic of the, the lessons learned from the, the lockout, 
you were not one for hyperbole. You mentioned it when you were in the lockout. You were still doing stories. You were traveling and fine. But you know there was a lot of opinion pieces written. And, and one of the things that I remember, and it's, again, not like this situation, but the doom and gloom. Fans won't come back. I'm never going to come back. Those rich owners, those rich players are never going to get my money. And yet we saw it most in both of the most recent um, you know, uh, lockouts that numbers were through the roof and everybody came back and everybody loved it. You won't have that kind of distancing this time, but I wonder if we can learn lessons from that. Well, no, uh, you know what? That's a great point, Rob. And I actually was going to uh, venture down that path, too, uh, in relation to the salary cap, because even internally in the Nash at the National Hockey League level, they they thought they, they were aware of, of this potential backlash because they'd seen, you know, social media was starting to evolve a little bit at, at the time. And they'd seen that collectively it, it looked like their fan base was turning against them. And they remembered that that happened in, in, in baseball. It took baseball a long time to recover from I think the very final work stoppage that that they had. So internally, uh, they they were worried about that, and they set the very first salary cap deliberately low because they felt, and both sides felt it, because you have to agree on that salary cap that uh, revenues might decline. And if you remember, you know, like we're, we we worry, you know, we talk about escrow all the time, and yeah. the players don't like the money, you know, that is being withheld after that first year because the cap was set so deliberately low, the players got a bonus because revenues were so high because all those people that or a lot of the people that said they weren't coming back did come back. And all of a sudden it was like, hey, our industry is back on solid ground. And so players not only got the full value of their contracts, there was like a like an additional bonus payment because because they didn't anticipate that happening. And then, yeah. you know, subsequent to that, uh, you know, I think they felt that it was business as usual. So you know, you're 100 percent right that um, that 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 people you know have have demonstrated over time that when sports go away, um, they miss them, and and there's this rush to get you know back into you know in front of your television set uh, to watch them. Now, as I said, you know, will there be a rush to get into the arenas, or will a, a generation of, 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 of like you know we've all as, as I said sitting at home in, at night in front of our television watching classic games watching mm. movies watching I watch music videos on YouTube um, is that going to be the thing that I prefer to do rather than you know venture down to the saddle dome and I, I think that internally right now that's the thing that they are most concerned about like if you were to ask you know you go, you go into the, these meetings that are going on right now between the, the players association and, and the NHL, you know, gate receipts are just such an important part yeah. of the industry right now. And what will happen to gate receipts? You know, do ticket prices have to come down? Do you have to put a garbage bag on every other seat? I, like, I think they're, I think they're kicking around all these different options, but but they don't know, and they are concerned. And I, I said, I, you know, you gave me another place I want to go, and I, I want to go back to your comment earlier about have you attended your last music concert? Eric, I wonder, again, as we begin to see, as we record this, we're beginning to see the opening up of society again. And I'm wondering about the importance of, of evaluating a golf course, for instance. Um, you know, there's new, there's, it's not going to be the same as it was. They'll put new rules in place. T- to me, this, all the success of all of this comes down to our ability to adapt. Do we adapt or do we go back to the known, known, behaviors that we had before I, I i really believe that from a kind of almost a chemistry set standpoint watching how golf returns is going to be very interesting 
Yeah, well, I would agree with that. I'm I'm not a golfer. Uh, no, no, neither than, am I. Yeah. Other than a you know a once or twice a year, uh, but I would. But you know, I have sympathy for the you know the Wes Gilbertsons and the, the Bruce Tobigans and all the people that are going through all right now. <laughs> but uh, but but you're right. <clears throat> From everything that I've read about it, is that you know if you play in twosomes, if you don't share a cart, um, you know, at times I, I I walk on the golf course anyway. Um, the, you know, the, the, a golf course is, is an, an opportunity to like social distancing shouldn't be that difficult on a golf course. Like I, I just don't see it, uh, it being an issue. So, uh, but I also think that, um, that there is a Yahoo factor in the, in the world. And so, you know, you and I would probably take a very sober approach to doing things the right way, but you just can't enforce good behavior on people. And there will be people that, uh, that, that, that won't do that. You know, you see it right now, you know, when you're out and about, you know, there are people that are, are doing the, you know, the right things on on the paths, and then there are people that are are crowding together and, and don't care about social distancing. And I think that something similar will occur on the golf courses. And and, and so I'm a tennis player. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have, I have a public court five minutes from where I live. It's still locked. I don't. I I do not understand why I can't play tennis with my son. Singles, opening a fresh tin of ball. He's on this side of the fence on, on, of the net. I'm on the other side of the net. I mean, like, like I consider myself like a really responsible person, but I think that that's something that I should be allowed to do right now. And uh, and so it will be interesting to see how tennis goes. So I I, I do think that, um, you know, I guess I can only speak for myself. I mean, I, I'm I'm skirting people on the sidewalks, walking on the roads because there's no cars on the road. You know, doing the things that we are supposed to do to help mitigate you know, the, the damage of this terrible thing. And, um, you know, but, but I also see lots of other people that, that aren't following the rules. And I, I suspect that that will translate into sports, that there will be people that uh, um, are prepared to take the risks. There are people that won't care about the rules. And, uh, and, and that probably is going to scare the rest of us, um, especially that latter bunch. I, I would like to trademark the um, Yahoo factor. I, I... <clears throat> Oh, okay. Well, I, it, it's apropos. So to to the point... Can I, can I just insert... So okay. I, I talk to my mother every other day. She's 88 years old. And she quoted Doug Ford back to me. And I heard for the first time an 88-year-old woman use the word Yahoo. And <laughs> I burst out laughing. And she didn't understand why. I said, Mom, I've never heard you use the term Yahoo. It just sounded so foreign coming out of her mouth. Anyway, it was fun. And, uh, and, 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 you know, again, these are changing times and people will surprise you sometimes. So doubling back to a comment you made about 15 minutes ago, when we were talking about as a music fan, you know, you, you asked the honest question, will you ever be back to a concert? James Taylor comes to town. Are you prepared to go see James Taylor in a venue that's, um, built for 4,000, but will only hold 500 that you'll be all spread out in tables there won't be any going up to the front and dancing. You, you know, your kind of your party is limited. Is you know that's a pretty impactful way of of partaking in something you've done all your life, right? Yeah, it's a great question, Rob. Um, I probably would have seen uh, you know like I hadn't bought my tickets for James Taylor yet because I wasn't sure you know where I would be yep. coverage wise. Um, but I had it, but I had it in mind to go and see him because he's somebody that I've been whose music I've enjoyed over the years and I've never seen live. And I have kind of like a bucket list of people that, uh, that I want to see. Um, 
my inclination would be no that I, I wouldn't um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go uh, to see him um, you know under under you know the, this these current circumstances now will I feel differently if there's a vaccine probably yeah. you know I, I, I mean to me that that's that's key to everything that mm. we're talking about if there's an effective vaccine that that reduces the risk for everyone uh, and and we do get to some 90 percent level of normalcy um, and, and reduce the risk to um, you know, I guess what you would consider a manageable risk, then, then at, at some point that I might. But but even at that, you know, I, I, my guess is that um, that I would see someone like Ron Sexsmith uh, in a smaller venue, uh, spaced out, similar to what you're talking about, as opposed to, you know, like, you know, Fleetwood Mac is on tour and, and you know, I'm in the 10th row at, on the floor at the Saddle Dome and there's, you know, 16,000 other people in the building. But my guess is that I probably won't do that again. Um, again, that's a function of my age, yeah. uh, as much as anything else. And, and I've seen a lot of the bands that I want to see, so I don't feel that I have to see Springsteen again because I've seen him six times, or you know, Jimmy Buffett again because I've seen him a dozen times. So um, I think everyone is going to have to to make those decisions for themselves. But I also believe that there will be a percentage of people that will feel like I do, and 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 just not go anymore. And, 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 you know, the entertainment industry is going to have to, to deal with that. The professional sports industry is going to have to deal with that. And, and I, but I thought you made a good point earlier in the conversation because if revenues decline on the gate receipt side, but, but television viewership is up, you know, then those rights fees that are coming up in the United States, they, they may, yeah. they may get a really nice dollar for them because, because suddenly, you know, like sports, uh, sports has been a really good property in this day and age of, of DVRs uh, anyway. And, uh, and the rights fees might be even better because that will be how people consume the product of professional sport on an even greater basis going forward. So I asked you about your passion. Now let me ask you about your profession because I would have first come across Eric DeHatchuk as a local newspaper writer. I think I probably read you in the hockey news. I certainly saw you on the satellite hot stove, which was revolutionary. You and I did almost two decades of radio, sports talk radio, which was kind of new. And now you're on a, a full t- you write for a full-time online sports newspaper and we're doing a podcast. So if anybody <laughs> has kind of trans you know tra- traversed the the changing sports media landscape it's eric dehatchuk um how does the sports media come out of all of this i mean that's a really good question and 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 sort of internally like you know my colleagues and i are talking about so what happens if if you know there's all these different return to play scenarios that have been floated around and one of them is to play a, a playoff tournament similar to what you see in the NCAA basketball. So, you know, like think about, you know, like a, a Utah regional in, in the Sweet 16, you know, and so there's four clusters of four teams and they play off over the course in, in you know, in, in, uh, in the basketball world, it's only the course of a four day weekend, but, but something similar will likely unfold in hockey if, if they do get permission to, to play. And so within the context of that, you know, will they also include media and, and, and allow us some sort of limited access. I don't think there'll be dressing room access, but I think that there will be an opportunity to speak to players, you know, like speed away and, and, and you can do your, but, but if you are part of the, the group that is assigned to cover that, are you then quarantined in the same hotel or, or what, what are the restrictions? And, and, and I don't know the answer to that, to, to, to be honest. I mean, I, I think that, you know, like our, you know, where I work right now, the athletic has, it's, I mean, it's, the company is, is 
Don Great Guns, and I think it's close to like a million paid subscribers. And and so like it's a it's a it's having an impact on the world of professional sports. So I, I do believe that um, rights holders will be invited in to to cover games, and I, I believe the athletic will be too. Um, but on on what basis and how many people and and then what that relationship will be, you know, I don't know. I mean, they're they're I. I like doing one-on-one -on -one interviews. I find that, you know, in the same way that you and I are just having a conversation now and, and something that you say spurs something in my mind and then something I say spurs something in your mind, to me, that's how you gather the best information uh, for stories. And so, you know, speaking personally, uh, you know, that's the relationship that I want to continue. And uh, so I, you know, and I don't do that many game, game over type stories anymore anyway. So I think that it will be one sort of, set of uh, rules for me um, because I've sort of evolved into like a feature writer analyst uh, over time. Um, but, but but I think for the for the game story writers, it's going to pose some real interesting challenges because I just don't think that there will be the mobs of people that we've seen before. And something that you brought up a long time ago uh, in this conversation, it may well be more like it was when I started. Because when I started, you know, I was the reporter at the Herald, and and Steve Simmons was a reporter from the Sun, and and Peter Marr and Doug Barkley were traveling with the team. But but there was no TSN, there was no so so you know local television would would drop by and and radio station, but there wasn't the mob that there is today. And I suspect going forward that it will go back to that you know scene where there's just a handful of people doing the, the, the reporting and, and that way that will be safer. Um, but it will, and it may, you know, it may make for more of a, a real dialogue between, uh, between the athletes and then the people that are reporting about them. I, I wonder a little bit about the now with technology again, I'm, you know, you're in your home office. I'm sitting in my home office here. We are doing a podcast and it can go up on the web and, you know, one person can listen to it. A million people can listen to it. This ability now to create, content at, at a level that we've never seen before kind of clashing with what you're just talking about you know we've even seen that you know in the last decade right bloggers and and you know non-traditional media outlets far more prevalent um at at sporting events at games at practices and things like that i, I to your point i agree exactly with what you're saying but where does that other you know kind of new economy sports media fit what do yeah. they become more outlawish or more you know, boundary testing, does it become more, obviously it's moving to opinion. It's not going to go back to game stories, but uh, it's, no. it's fascinating what it could look like on the outside. Yeah. Well, but what I would say though, is that, uh, you know, that, that there will still always be a need for someone to gather material on a primary level. Yeah. Like a, a lot of what you're talking about, you know, like the sort of, you know, blogging evolved from, you know, like reading, you know, like my piece in the Globe and Mail or my piece in the, in the Calgary Herald, and then some, and then they would comment on it. They would say, you know, um, you know, Zarley Zalapsky told Eric Duhatchuk after the game this. Here's what I think, and then they you know, created a, a dialogue. So I think that there will always still be a need for someone to act as the primary liaison between the public and the athletes. Um, the teams are doing a good job internally of, of of doing that themselves. You know, like that. You know, the the Flames have. You know, weekly conference call with uh, with Bradtree Living. The Oilers are, are putting you know former players, current players on on Zoom calls and, and asking questions sub submitted by the media. So there are there are ways of bypassing what we would consider you know traditional or, or mainstream media. But I but I think you know again from 
you know, the, sort of the intel that I'm gathering that the Players Association and even the NHL believes that there is a value to having outside voices also uh, commenting on their game and reporting on their game. Because I do think that sometimes people make the distinction between something that they might read on NHL.com or on a team website and then something that they, they would read in an independent um, uh, outlet. And so I, I think that there will be continue to be a role for those of us in the so-called mainstream media, whatever it looks like. You know, I don't you know, is the athletic mainstream media. I, I think we've become mainstream media. I don't know how, but but a you know sports subscription website available only online is now mainstream media. It's, it's well, hard to wrap it, around it sometimes. <laughs> it kind of begs a question too, because I and I guess I'm looking for clarification from you. Is there are there bloggers anymore, or was that a thing like fifteen years ago when writing on a website kind of first started? Because I guess by the two thousand and five definition, the athletic would be a blog, right? Yeah. Well, and, and here's what I would tell you. You know, so like a couple of our most popular writers, you know, uh, Sean McIndoe, Down Goes Brown, started as a blogger, but now he's part of our our company. You know, yeah. and, and and my boss in Canada, James Myrtle, before he joined the Globe, where we were colleagues. You know, he, he started out, he got his foot in the door because he had a blog. And I do think that there are some people that uh, that have been able to to move from that, you know, um, forum uh, into a, a more of a mainstream role. But you're right. You don't, you don't hear the term blog anymore. In fact, one of the few people that uses it is Ken Campbell at the, at the <laughs> Hockey News. And, uh, you know, he's trying to comment on, on the news of the day. And uh, and he'll you know when he does that he'll say you know here's my blog and I, I you know and it seems odd to read that because you don't see people you know talking about blogs anymore and uh, so I I do think that yeah uh, you know just because there are so many different ways of of getting information out there the you know the the notion of having a blog which you're constantly updating that it that sort of has you know it became a thing and that's kind of going away from that and and I honestly don't know what the the future of that is I do think that um like again the company I work for right now seems to be doing pretty well um, and seems to be surviving pretty well because I mean we we've you know we 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 do projects uh, constantly every week something new um, you know I've written about music I've written about movies um, but as long as you tell an interesting story I mean ultimately you know I've, I've told you before Rob when when you've asked me okay what's your philosophy you know it's to uh, it, it's to entertain and it's to inform and so you know even if there are no games going out you know when I sit down at my computer and file my Friday notebook which I did a few minutes ago, you know, I, I read it over one final time. Have I, have I entertained and have I informed? And if I have, then I press the send button. So I think that that part will never change. That that is the role of media in whatever forum you you choose to use. And there's been obviously so many new forums emerge and evolve. You still have to tell people an interesting story. And so that that part doesn't change. Let me editorialize just for a second. To me, the the beauty and the strength of the athletic, and and I, it's not perfect. None of this is, but the beauty and the strength of the athletic to me, Eric, is that it is a real middle finger to all of the suits, if you want to call them that, the Hollywood character types, whatever you want to come up with, for the people that that weren't media people that were running media companies, telling us what people wanted, and they said nobody wants the long form anymore. Nobody they want it short bites. They want the they you know they want opinion pieces and everything like that. I think the athletic, as I say, and I I guess I'm being a little blunt with it, but I think it's a big middle finger to everybody who said that people don't have the attention span for good long form writing. 
Yeah, well, it's kind of you just say that. And, and I would say that, you know, like I would characterize myself as pretty old school when it comes to journalism. Lots of, you know, like I have yeah. formal journalism training, you know, master's degree, all that that stuff. And so, you know, yeah, I, 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 I'm like you. I, I'm one of the reasons that I went to work for the Globe and Mail for all those years was because when, when the job was pitched to me, you know, it, it was pitched on, on a journalistic basis mm. that we, you will have the opportunity to, in, to do investigation. You'll have the opportunity to report out a story. If you need more time, you don't have to file something tomorrow. Take a week, call enough people and get it right. And that, that's that's always been one of the most challenging things. You know, there are times when when you gather information and, and it just it's all, you know, it's all scattershot in your head and you and you have to rein it in and, and you try once and it isn't working and try again isn't working and, and all of a sudden the third time it's like okay now you know like it clicks into place like a like a rubik's cube and at that point it's like okay ready to go ready to publish and so i enjoy that and uh and then that again that was part of the appeal of uh of joining the athletic when i did because you know at that point unfortunately you know, my paper i was working for the globe and mail was sports was you know, um, losing its impact uh, at the paper and, and the things that, that we were able to do, we weren't doing as much of. And, and the athletic promised this opportunity to, to kind of go back in time, obviously a different forum, but to tell stories in detail. And, and you know me, yep. yeah, it takes me 800 words just to warm up. <laughs> so I, I, need, I need the ability to, to, you know, be able to write a couple thousand words more if, if I feel that it's uh, a different story. Um, I like it, and I'm glad you like it. And, and I think, you know, I mean, you know, as I say, you know, there's a lot of people that have um, that have signed up and, and and seem to be enjoying it. Not everybody loves everything you write, yeah. you know. That's just part of what we do, right? You know, I, I remember when, you know, not everybody would agree with your opinions on uh, when you were a radio show host, right? You just, you know, you tell you tell the stories the best of your ability, and you know, hope that and, you know, more people like them than don't. That to me is one of the big shortcomings of of nowadays. Uh, to be perfectly honest, is um, that it's more about affirmation than it is about information. And you and I've had this conversation. Best advice I was ever given when I got in the business is, you know, who are the writers you like? Good. Who are the writers you don't like? Okay, read them. Like there's too there's too much thing um, uh, same think or like mm-hmm. think or whatever. And um, and and. And again, you know, it sounds like two old guys on the lawn yelling at the kids to get off. That's that's not it. I, I just I, I'm happy we're to a place now where we seemingly can accommodate everybody. And the athletic does that. Podcasts do that. I mean, we're we're about 38 minutes into a conversation that we would have never had on the radio because we would have had to have taken a commercial break or stopped or we only had 12 minutes. Um, it's nice that we have the places that people can go and get the information. I get it that there's some who just want it in bite-sized pieces or just want to read headlines. I think that's dangerous, but that's just me. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I, I'm in a you know a couple of hockey pools here in town, and I remember I was at a playoff draft a couple of years ago, and the two guys that always give me the hardest run in these pools, really smart people and really good fantasy hockey players, and and I'd been at the Athletic for about a year at that point, and. And I said, how are you enjoying the athletic? And, you know, knowing that these two hardcore sports fans for sure were subscribed, it never even occurred to me that they weren't. And, and the answer was, oh, we don't we don't subscribe to the athletic. And I said, really? I would have thought for sure you were our target audience. Like, you, you know, you live and breathe sports. You know, everything there is about fantasy. Um, it's, it's incredible that, that you wouldn't read the athletic. And the answer was, well, we don't read. And, and it was like, 
I was stopped. I, I was I was stopped in my tracks. You don't read. And then it occurred to me, I mean, not everybody reads, you know, and 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 the, the their point was that, you know, that that they can get all the information that they need on Sportsnet or on TSN because they're primarily interested in results. They're interested in the summaries. They go to NHL.com for that. And the type of thing that I was doing at the time, you know, like a long look at player X or issue Y, they just didn't interest them. And I thought, okay, you know, and, and, and then they were listeners of yours and they watched, you know, the sports center at four 30, but, but they weren't interested in reading long form. So you, know, you have to wrap your head around the fact that there are, are people that don't like that and, and don't care about that. And there's nothing you can do. Like we'll never sell subscriptions to people that don't want to read. But what I would say is that, uh, and, and this is to your point that a surprising number of people have missed long form journalism. And I think that those are the ones that have come to where I work now because they want that. And, and I, I get that often on a story that I'll post, you know, someone will say, you know, there's no place else other than the athletic where you could get a story about, you know, Gene Carr and what he's doing now and, 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 you know, finding this long lost daughter after 50 years and, you know, being the inspiration for a Glenn Fry song. And, you know, I mean, we, we have the ability to, to report that out and, uh, and to tell that story and, and, you know, a percentage of people really enjoy it. So, you know, like I'm, you know, I, I guess what I would tell you is I'm in a good place professionally right now, um, even as everything changes and evolves. How, how much, okay. One last one on this and I promise we'll move on to a different topic, but how much does the world of sport miss a good, thick, heavy Sunday edition newspaper. The mm. one that you grab a cup of coffee and you pour through for three hours. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that's a really good question because, of course, in, 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 in so, you know, the Sunday newspaper is a staple of the American newspaper industry and the Saturday newspaper was really the staple in Canada. Okay, when, I was kid, yeah. when I was a kid growing up, it was the Saturday Star, you right. know, the Saturday Telegram, the Saturday Globe and Mail. And even here, you know, the, the you know, the, the Calgary Herald's primary edition, we had a big, fat, thick Saturday uh, newspaper. And and then, you know, like I, I remember one of the things I, I got hired at the Globe and Mail for one reason, which was my Saturday Herald notebooks. Neil Campbell, the editor that, uh, that hired me, um, thought that, you know, like, you know, I remember, I think he's, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you and Maddie and Jim Matheson and Kevin DuPont are the king of the NHL notebooks. And there was a period of time a long ago when we probably were, because we, we wrote these things. Larry Brooks eventually was doing the same thing at the New York Post, but we had these staples on the weekend. And, and so many times I'd go out in the community and, and people would tell me, I love that those tidbits you do on Saturday. It was always a full page. And so I do think that, um, when people got the newspaper delivered at home and, and, and especially when it came like appointment reading, you know, because that notebook was there every Saturday, they looked forward to it. And, and what I found was that, you know, some were better than others, but people read them all, you know, because if this one wasn't as good as the last one, well, maybe the next one will be better. And so that I've always been a great believer in that right? and, and consistently provide people with stuff. That's why I do a Friday notebook at the athletic. I mean, I haven't been able to do it every single Friday. There hasn't been that much to do, but, but I try to, post something every Friday because the people that follow me and read me are looking for a, my Friday notes column on Friday afternoon. And so I do think that, you know, that um, a percentage of people of a certain age and generation do miss that kind of deep reads that you could get on, on weekends. I know when I was at the Globe and Mail, that, that those were my favorite pieces. I was doing the notebooks, but if I had a chance to once a month do a, you know, 
3,000 words on the evolution of coaching or, you know, or, or whatever it would be, the wine industry and, and, and athletes involved in the wine industry. Those are the types of things that I really enjoy doing. And, and, and people would contact me and tell me those are the types of things they like to read. So, But you were, you were also the reason we had more well-rounded sports fans. Boy, I just took a shot at a lot of people. That, let, <laughs> let, let me explain that. As an advocate of youth sport, one of the biggest dangers I think we have right now is early specialization. We turn a seven-year-old into a 12-month-a-year hockey player or baseball player. I think it's the worst thing we can do. I think kids need to grow up playing all sports. And I guess the point I was trying to make, Eric, is you're right. And I appreciate you pointing out the difference. Americans were Sunday, but we were Saturdays. The comics came, everything. It was a big, fat paper. But I read you, but I read everything else in the sports section. Because it was Saturday. That means I read about the UC Dinos. That means I read about the Cannons. That means I read about the Stampeders, right? And and I, I think that's the one complaint I have. Well, one, but a complaint I have is that even now the media is so stratified, right? That, you know, we're kind of, you, you're writing hockey now, but you've gone to Olympics, you've covered tennis, you've done great cups, you've done all of that. That used to be the job. And I think we were better served when we had more like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would agree with that. I was hired as a ski writer in 1978. And, and <laughs> Calgary was uh, an opportunity to work at the Calgary Albertan as their ski writer during the era of the crazy Canucks. And so, you know, Ken Reed is from Calgary. Um, you know, he was, you know, in the midst of a, of a great career and, and had, some of his best years during that period of time that, that I was the ski writer. And I have to tell you, it was like the best job I ever had. I mean, two years of being the ski writer and, and doing, you know, high school sports and, and, you know, year two junior hockey, but primarily that was my job. And it got me to the Olympics in Lake Placid, um, got me a chance to cover the miracle on ice early on. And, I, but I wasn't just covering hockey in Lake Placid. I was covering downhill skiing. I was covering men's figure skating because Brian Pokar was a medal contender so you're right. Uh, you know, there there was a period of time when, when you could do more, um, and then you know over time specializations uh, evolved. I always tried to you know to to do a little bit of tennis in the summer just to give myself a window in in a different sport. And partly it was because I enjoyed the sport as a on a participatory level and think thought I understood it. So I always felt that I could write effectively about tennis because I'm watching a match and I I can see the the tactics and, and what's unfolding. Whereas you know, when I watch a golf match, you know, I, I, I'm just a fan. You know, I don't really yeah. have any keen understanding of what's going on there. So, um, but yeah, yeah uh, you know, we've talked in the past about about uh, about children and, and, and mm-hmm. sports and, and exposing them to different things. And I always, I, I know that for me, it was, a lot of it was framed by, you know, seeing my own children, you know, grow up and, and, and go through the ranks. And, and, you know, my wife and I, we, we talked about it. You know, our goal was to expose them to as many different things as they wanted to be exposed to. And then, and then let them them choose what what they wanted to do. So my son didn't start playing hockey until he was nine, and I never wanted to force him into it. I wanted it to be his decision. And then the, the good news was that when he decided he was ready, he was so passionate about it that he's still playing today in an adult rec league. So he never got tired of it. He never got burned out. But he started when he was ready. But in the meantime, he skied and he played tennis and he ran, you know, cross country. Him and Randy Sportax son, you know being in the finals at uh, the high school track and field, you know, that was one of the great moments of our lives. And Randy and I sitting there watching our, our sons compete in the, you know, in the, in the, in the mile final or 1500 meters or whatever it was. It was just, you know, so it, 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 
you know, and, and I believe in that and you believe in that. And, and I think there's still enough of us that advocate for it. I must have quoted Wayne Gretzky 10 different times over the years talking about his background and playing tennis as a kid and playing baseball as a kid and how important that was to his overall cognitive ability as an athlete to see things from a different perspective and not strictly be funneled into the hockey vacuum. He played tons of hockey, as you know, on the outdoor ranks, but did a lot of other stuff too. Yeah. And, and, and I just, I think that that was part of, you know, growing up as a sports fan too, was also, and it's just a changing time. I get it. You know, ultimately the, the customer, the client, whoever you want to call them, they make the decision. They read what they read. They listen to what they listen to, but I don't know. I'm, I'm a little romantic um, for those days. I, I thought it was simpler times. Anyway, I should mention that Eric Tehachuk from The Athletic is our guest. By the way, if you want the latest in Sport Calgary updates in one place, sign up for Sport Calgary's newsletter for the latest monthly updates sent straight to your inbox, sportcalgary.ca. An eight-year-old Eric Tehachuk's most important thing in life was what? Hmm, eight, eh? Yeah. You don't want, to, you don't want it to be ten? <laughs> just, just picking a number. Eight years old, grade five. Hmm. Yeah, that would have, well, okay, so I was started playing hockey at that point. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, like immediately went from, you know, like not knowing very much about the sport to, to playing at every single moment of, uh, of my waking life. Here's what I would tell you, like just in terms of my development as a person, like I was always like the smartest kid in the class. So school was easy for me. I, I didn't even have to give it very much thought or work. Uh, it just, it came very easily to me. Sports didn't, you know, I had to work for everything I ever accomplished in sports. And I got to be, you know, not a bad runner and, you know, okay tennis player. I was, you know, I was, I was decent at a lot of things, never great at any of them, but I, I played every single sport. What sport taught me was the value of hard work because I, I didn't learn that from schoolwork. School was just, you know, you know, nothing, but, but sports were hard. And, and, and the lessons that I took into adulthood from playing sports as a kid was that, you know, that there's great value in doing something you're not good at and making yourself better at it. And, and, and yeah, that, that, that to me was, uh, and I was thinking those thoughts when I was eight, because I knew, you know, like I said, you know, top of the class in school, no, no issues there. Um, but not always the best on every team, but I, I wanted to be the best and probably never did get to that, but I got way better because I put the time and effort into it, knowing that it didn't come to me naturally. I had to work for it. So did you have that that desire, that need? Were you going to be the next, you know, great NHL player? Were you going to be the next big tennis player, at, at, you know, as a teenager? Or, you know, was the media calling? When did that no. enter your life? Well, Rob, I knew early on that I was not going to be the next great <laughs> NHL player. <laughs> I learned those lessons very, very early. Um, well, I mean, so I'm, you know, I'm – Finish high school, go to college, undergrad degree. Halfway through, uh, you know, it, it was basically journalist, teacher, lawyer, and uh, and you know the program at the University of Western Ontario had had they created a grad school program uh, for journalism, um, and it was designed to teach people who didn't have a journalism background, so you didn't have to work for the school paper to become journalists. And this was you know shortly after Watergate when journalism was a profession that was held in fairly high esteem. You know, yeah. the feeling was that exposed this scandal and 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 you know cost Nixon his presidency. So there was a lot of focus on journalism and, and I think that it had a, a higher degree of respect than than it ever had during that period of time. So I was, you know, I I wanted to be a journalist because I thought it was a fun 
it, it looked like a fun profession. I was extremely inquisitive. As you know, Rob, mm -hmm. A, I like to talk, but B, I like to listen and ask questions as well. And that the notion of, of you know, putting on a suit and, and going to an office in a law office, I mean, I would have done that if I hadn't been accepted at journalism school, but that was what I wanted to do. And, you know, put my mind to it, got accepted, you know, graduated top of the class <laughs> and then, and then, you know, found a, a, an entry level position and, and haven't left for 42 years. So, and it has been like really fun, you know, like my daughter, you know, 20, 39 years after I went to the university of Western Ontario, she did the same journalism program and she's working as a journalist now too. And we talked a little bit about that, you know, growing up and, and, uh, you know, she, she would be sitting beside me as a five or six year old in the office because, you know, I had, we had two chairs and two computers up there and, Remember, my wife would always say, aren't they distracting you? I said, I write columns in a hockey arena with 20,000 screaming fans. One child beside me is not going to be a <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, so, um, but yeah, this, uh, it's been, like, really fun. And, and you, know, the, you know, the number of paid jobs in the profession are shrinking, and it's a yeah. tough, tough goal of that. And, and it's hard to encourage people to, to go down this path because – just it's difficult to make a living at it and and yet you know if you have a passion for it and you know my daughter does um you know sometimes it's it's worth taking those chances so was you said 77 you came to calgary as a, a ski reporter it's 1978 yeah. 78 was that the so, first gig was that your first media gig so I'm working at the Albertan. I'm the low man in the totem pole. That first full time. I, I was a summer student at the Toronto okay. Star and the yeah. Toronto Sun. So I was doing some, uh, I was doing some sports writing for the for the Toronto Sun as a student, um, and then I had an internship at the Toronto Star, and then I got a summer job the next summer. So I, I I'd done some news and I'd done some sports, mm -hmm. and I was applying for a full time position at a time when you know the Star had a hiring freeze on, and um, you know I think they liked me. I got a real good. Um, report uh, back to the journalism school, but they just didn't have any, any jobs. It was like, find a job and, you know, come back and, and, you know, you can join us in time to get some experience. So there was an opening. Lynn Watson was the sports editor at the Albertan. And I've told you this story before, I think, but I'm a kid growing up in Toronto and uh, I'm, I'm being interviewed on the phone by the sports editor of the Calgary Albertan. And he asked about skiing. And I said, yeah, I've, I've actually skied all my life. My parents emigrated from Austria. You know, I'm a skier, you know? And he said, good. He says, I need someone to cover skiing. He said, all my guys want to cover curling. And, and I thought he was making a joke, right? So I laughed. And then all of a sudden there's this thousand one, thousand two, thousand three dead silence. And I'm thinking, oh, I think I've made a mistake here. And of course, the reason that, that you know, he had a, an older staff and curling is kind of a drinking beat in those days, right? So you go out to the bond spiel and you'd have a beer with whoever, you know, with Paul Gausel and, and, uh, and, and whereas skiing, you had to go out to the hill and you had to do your own stats because there wasn't, and, and so it was a lot more work and it was more something that a younger person would, would enjoy. But I, I quickly you know, moved past that, did get hired as a ski rider, came out and, but I was doing university sports First team I covered was the Alberta Junior League team owned by Doug Barkley. So a couple of years later, you know, Doug is doing uh, color commentary for your radio station. But Doug owned the team. Russ Farrell was the first coach. Doug Messier was coaching St. Albert. Yeah. Mark Messier was playing in the, in, in the league. Um, so, you know, so, yeah, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And uh, and then when the Flames came in 1980, um, yeah, I just, uh, you know, switched full-time to hockey at that point. So. 
I recently had a socially distanced and very responsible coffee with a mutual friend, Al Mackey. Al was telling me that um, when he came, which would have been very close to when you came, um, he got here and he wondered, where the hell was I? Like, th- this, this is no good. What was Calgary 1978 like pre-NHL? Pre, I get the Olympic announcement hadn't been made yet, had it? No, yeah, I, I loved it, Rob. You I did. Mean, my intention, my intention was to to come out here for a couple of years, pay my dues, and and gradually work my way back to Toronto. And 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 so you know, there was a period of time it was Al Mackey and I and David Schultz and, and Steve Simmons and eventually Jeff Blair too. Uh, you know, all of us came from the east, and and Al and I both stayed. Yeah. And you know, Schultz went back, Simmons went back, Blair went back. And, uh, but I, I loved it because I was like, I was a big outdoors guy. Right. So, you know, I, and, and again, this is, uh, I, I, I'd had that same year that I got an offer from the Alberta and I had an expression of interest. It wasn't a formal offer from the Edmonton Sun as well. So I got out my Atlas of Canada and I opened it to Alberta and right there, right beside Calgary is Banff on the map. I mean, right beside. Okay. So I knew it was close, but I didn't realize it was right beside and honestly, that was the deciding factor. If I go out to Calgary, I can ski in Banff. I don't have to ski at Blue Mountain anymore. Horseshoe. I mean, they're, they're, they were okay, but they were crowded and they were, they were little hills, basically. And then I had a chance to come out and ski the mountain. And, you know, first time you see the mountains, you know, I wondered, you know, does, does it ever get old? You know, like if you grow up here or if you see them all the time, eh, they're just the mountains. Well, they've never grown old. And I still hike. And, and, and then, you know, eventually, you know, you have a family and, and, and your kids are into that, you know, so now you're hiking with your kids in the mountain. So, I, I mean, I never wanted to go back. And, uh, and even when, you know, so 2000, I left uh, the Calgary Herald and uh, got hired by the Globe and Mail. And then the option was to, to go to Toronto. And it was like, do I have to, you know, like I would rather stay here. And if the job is to cover the NHL as a national writer, I think it's easier to do it in Calgary than Toronto. That was my argument because, you know, just less media here, more opportunities. I, the specific example I, I cited was, I said, I can sit in the stands with Joe Sackick here and have a conversation with him. I could never do that if I worked in Toronto. And they agreed. So I was allowed to stay and uh, and I've never really felt the, uh, the need to leave Calgary. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. I still love it. In defense of our friend Al, uh, it's he's, he's the same way and it didn't take long. He just... <clears throat> You know, it, it, it's just the reality of it. You know what we are today compared to where we were, because it wouldn't have been a city of a million people when you got here. I think it was six seventy-five. But here's the other thing I would tell you, Rob. Yeah. Again, you know, you're bringing up all these memories. We it was it went an unbelievably great Indian summer that year. So I had heard. So one of the people I went to journalism school was a man named Bill Culp, who had done while I'm doing my summer program at. Uh, uh, at the Toronto Star, he's out here with the CBC in Calgary, and I think it was just a three-month placement. And uh, at the end of it, he was coming back. I think he was from Kingston, and, and I contacted him because I had taken this job in Calgary, and I said, "What was it like?" And he said, "You'll hate it." He said, "It's terrible. There is no culture. There's nothing. It's just this cowboy place." And and so I'm driving out here, you know, talking to a colleague or like a, a, a journalism school colleague, and 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 thinking, "Oh my God, what have I gotten myself into?" And I got here and, and I didn't find anything that he said was true. You know, like I, I wasn't big on country music, but I was always open to listening to any kind of live music and uh, and fell in with a, you know, like a real good group of people and 
you know, a year later, you know, um, another person I went to journalism school with, James Muratich, and working at Peterborough Examiner doing nighttime police, you know, the music critic job opened up here, and uh, I put him in touch with Ruth Ann McKinnon, who was entertainment editor. He got the, the job, came out here, and then, you know, spent most of 79 to 81 going to concerts with James and, and listening to all of his free records that arrived from the, his review copies from the... Uh, from the from the music company so it was pretty good it was a really good play and the only bad thing about it was we were making nothing like we were making nickels yeah. and dimes and that yeah. was during one of those oil booms so it was money was tight that was the only thing that i would say but uh, but other than that everything else about uh, about the job and living here was very very appealing well i'm going to take advantage of some inside knowledge tell me about those two years with james and what influence that had on your life well, I just wrote about it in, on The Athletic last Friday for my notebook because uh, we had, so it was music week at The Athletic. And I think on the Monday they posted uh, 30 best baseball songs. And there was an outrage from the readers because Centerfield by John Fogarty was left off the list. And uh, and so I'd mentioned to my editor that uh, that in the old days when James and I were living together, we would have parties at our place. And uh but because, you know, the, the, we just had so many records, we didn't want people playing the records and pulling them on and off the stairs. So what we do is we would we would pre-tape, we would create these cassette tapes and we would pre-program every party. We'd have them, you know, every other month. And we'd tape like seven and a half hours of music and we'd go back <laughs> and forth. And, and again, we have voluminous record collections, not just this free stuff you were getting. I mean, you know, I, I you know, when I moved out, you know, half the my half my car was filled with my record collection, and uh, and we're still buying stuff that, that didn't come for free. But so we would we would do that. And we'd have these massive parties up in our place in Co in Coach Hill, and people would come from all over, and friends would come, and people would date crash, and and they were wild and and, and crazy. So um, that was a, like a really fun period of time. I went to tons and tons of shows. Um, you know, because the, there wasn't like a, a major venue like like Northlands uh, in in Calgary, we would go up there for Fleetwood Mac. We were there for the very first ABBA concert in. North Tell this story. Tell this story, please. Okay. All right. So, well, there's two parts of it. You know, one, I, I was accredited as a photographer for that. It was another thing that I learned at journalism school. In those days, you took your own pictures, and it was again, it was film. You have all up film, and I mean, it, it was a complicated process. But so James and I drive up there, and ABBA, who's had all this worldwide success up until this point, had never done a tour. And so they were starting, and, and they, they started in Edmonton. I guess it's like, you know, starting in Peoria if you're a Broadway show. But, but I mean, Robert Hilburn from the Los Angeles Times was there, Rolling Stone, like all, all of the key music uh, media people were there, and James and I. And again, you know, I'm a 24-year-old kid with long hair, and James has got a beard and looks like Rasputin. And, and we are so in, immersed in punk rock, you know, because we're so tough and we're listening to The Clash and The Jam and Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson and, and all of these, you know, people that are, uh, you know, calling for, you know, changes in, in society. I mean, just wonderful, peppy, upbeat music. And here's ABBA, right? You know, like ABBA, you know, Waterloo, finally, you know, I mean, <laughs> and it's, we had this attitude, like, and, and and so and, and in those days, everybody got asked questions. They didn't ask if you were the photographer, you were accredited, you went up there. So we each asked a question and we were complete, you know, can I use the term? Or, yeah, or, but please. Or, all right. We were complete dicks about it. <laughs> and yet they they were so polite. You know, I remember asking something about what, you know, why did it take so long? Like, you know, did you not have any confidence? Is your music still relevant? All these other things. And they said, well, you know, music is a matter of personal taste and, and you know, we... 
know, a lot of people like the music that we sing, but we also like, you know, the music that, you know, that, is being, that you're referencing and, 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 you know, music is a great place, you know, for, for people to, to come together. And so James and I are leaving the press conference. I turned to him and I said, you know what? We're a couple of assholes. <laughs> and we just laughed about it because they were so unfailingly polite and we were not being very nice. And so you know, it was the next day, there's the concert, you know, you get three songs in the pit to shoot what you need. And then there's a row for everybody to sit in the 10th row there. And I, you know, I listened to ABBA with a fresh ear and found myself really enjoying it and just allowing my natural prejudice towards, you know, like a fluffy band uh, dissipate. And, and yeah, it was, it was, it was really good. It was really fun. So, you know, again, you know, you're a kid, you know, and sometimes you need experiences like that to open your eyes to other possibilities. And, uh, and I have to say that I've, you know, been part of that. I like what I like school of, of music ever since. And so, you know, sometimes you, you know, like I like the Carpenters, you know, sometimes, you know, that's not popular to say that, but you know, Hey, Karen Carpenter right here. Right. And the, she just gets you with that voice. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. We had, we had a really good, um, we had a really good two year run there. I have to say. One, and I, I guess something else that I know about you and I, I'm just curious, and I'm pretty sure you told me this, is that when you started your tradition of creating, a, which is now a CD, but a year's worth of music, your favorite music per year? Yeah. So I did do that, Rob, uh, through to 1986. And then I had a 17 year gap, um, partly because I wasn't listening to the radio as much and I wasn't paying as close attention. And so I was aware of the music that was going on there. But there was a period of time, you know, when when the kids started to come um, that I wasn't paying as close attention to music as, as I did you know, up until, you know, 1986. And But what got me back doing it again was in 2003, I'm covering Stanley Cup playoffs uh, in Anaheim and staying at one of those Hilton hotels that's close by the, the Honda Center there. And, uh, you know, weather's nice and there's a pool and I'm spending a lot of time at the pool and, and, and they were pump, pumping a lot of music again. And uh, so I was listening, you know, for the first time in a long time, I was listening to new material. I remember, you know, Fleetwood Mac had a song called Peacekeeper and uh, um, Michelle Branch, who I'd never heard of, had, had a hit. And I got, it got me interested again in, in current music. So I started to, in, uh, you know, again, it was sort of during the evolving time. I think iTunes came along shortly thereafter. I, I forget what program I was using before that, whatever came with your Microsoft computers at the time, Music Match. And uh, I started listening again and, and, and started to, in my own mind, creating these 20 song playlists of, of my favorite songs of that year. And, and yeah, I've been doing it ever since. So from 2003 to now, I, I did one for 2019. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, I, I want to try as much as I can to, to stay current. Um, it's hard when you get to a certain age because, you know, you, for one thing, I've got like a vast library of music so I can... You know, I can come come up with, uh, you know, playlists for every day or for every mood that I'm in. But you still want to hear what's new, what's out there. Um, you know, I just downloaded the new Ron Sexsmith, uh, Jimmy Buffett. I've been a fan of since 1997. I think his new release is coming out at the end of May, but there's previews of it online already. So, um, yeah, you know, I'm still trying to stay as current as I can. I love it. Um, all right. I'm going to take you back. Um, you mentioned that, you know, Edmonton, rec- you know, the Coliseum was up in Edmonton. The NHL comes to Calgary um, in 1980. How does life change around you? I mean, you become, you know, the beat reporter for the Calgary Flames, but I'm just curious, 
what it meant in your observation to the city to become an NHL city? Oh, I think it changed everything. Uh, I, I do believe that um, that the feeling, I mean, I guess, you know, can I speak for the entire city? I think the feeling was that it, it brought Calgary into the big leagues. So, you know, this was a city that was in the midst, as I say, of, of an oil boom, very prosperous, a uh, lot of work, a lot of excitement. It felt like a really young city, like as, as a young person going to restaurants, going to bars, meeting other people. It just felt like there was a there was a level of, of excitement, and 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 it felt like like the NHL, uh, you know, legitimized that. Or I'm not sure if that's the right word, but but it just it, it felt like uh, like the right place, right time. I mean, you know, the, I don't know if people remember, but there wasn't a building at the time, so the you know the team was purchased from Tom Cousins in Atlanta. Um, Nelson Scalbania bought it originally, sold half of it to, you know, the, the, the local oil, then that eventually became the, you know, the longtime stewards of the team, people like Harley Hotchkiss and, and the Seaman brothers. Um, but, but the fear was, you know, like, you know, you'd have to charge a lot because you were, you know, for a ticket because you, you were playing in such a small building. And I remember Nelson Scalvania at the press conference saying, you know, like if you're interested in getting a season ticket, just slip your application under the the door, <laughs> and uh, and you know, they sold out instantly. Yeah. At, you know, at what was considered like an astronomical ticket price vis-a-vis the rest of the league, and it was like that for the, the first couple of years in the Corral. You know, 64, 98 seating, 700 and change standing. You know, people had to put their feet in these white shoe prints that were in the, you know, sort of concourse at the, um, at the, the corral. Um, in the meantime, you know, the saddle dome is being built. We would get tours and updates of, of it, uh, you know, and it was going to be the state of the art building. And then it came in and suddenly, you know, Calgary had a building similar to, to what Edmonton did that attracted all of the top musical acts. Um, the team started to get really good. Uh, and, and so, yeah, the, the level of excitement was, was really high. I always tell the story about George Johnson and I interviewing Ivan Lendl, the, the hot, the, the tennis player. And he had been put on the board of directors of, of the Hartford Whalers. And we're there talking to Lendl in, uh, sometime in the eighties. And, uh, you know, he, he was a big hockey fan, you know, tech player. And, uh, he was talking about, uh, about watching the battle of Alberta and, uh, and it was like, where would you see the Battle of Alberta in Hartford? He said, well, we have this, this new thing, ESPN, and they're showing all of the games. And, uh, and we, I think he was referencing, he said, the, you know, the Canada Cup is the best hockey I've seen, except for that playoff series between, you know, Calgary and, and Edmonton. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, Calgary's really on the map. If Yvonne Lendl sitting <laughs> at his home in Springfield or wherever the heck he was, Greenwich, uh, is watching you know, late at night, flames and Oilers on, on television and speaking so enthusiastically about it. But it, it put it, Calgary on, on the map, uh, um, you know, as more than just uh, the home of, of, of the Stampede, you know, what it was obviously known for before. But I think that, you know, for anyone that didn't care about rodeo and, and chuck wagons, yeah. you know, now yeah. you've got a team in, in the NHL and, and the city name is in New York Times every day. I mean, it's, yeah, I think it, it, it fundamentally changed the city. The Olympics, what did that mean? What was that? And, and how did that influence you or impact you? Yeah, well, actually, the Olympics wasn't one of the, the best professional experiences of my life because, unfortunately, a bunch of people that didn't know anything about sports decided to get involved. And so, you know, it wasn't the finest day for the Calgary Herald because, you know, like rather than have a standalone sports section, they folded all of the Olympic coverage into Olympic sections. And so people 
you know, would come up to me and they, you know, did, did you cover the game? I said, yeah, where was it? It was on A1. Well, we didn't look there, you know. So I, I think that there was a miscalculation in terms of the newspaper that I worked at of how people wanted to consume um, the news about the Olympics. There should have been a standalone news section and a standalone sports section, and there wasn't. So that was that was really difficult. Uh, but but I have to tell you, traveling with that uh, 87-88 Olympic team was one of the better professional experiences of my life. It got me to, uh, to Moscow in December of 1987 for the Izvestia tournament. Still consider that to be the, the most important event I ever covered because there was a whole bunch of, like very rarely in the history of hockey that is a Canadian team, such a strong underdog. But that was the Soviets of, you know, the... Of, yeah. Of the, of the you know of the pre you know preeminent era, and it was like Sean Burke and Zarly Salapsky and Kenny Berry and Mark Habscheid and a, a kind of a ragtag bunch. And they went over there and they won the tournament in the same building where Canada won the Summit Series in '72. So the first Canadian team in I think it was 15 years to to win on Russian soil, and it was an unbelievable experience. And again, very difficult to to get your stories transmitted. You know, we'd have to go to the AP offices in Moscow and they'd send it by ticker tape to London. And then from there, like it was, you were working constantly all the time to write your stuff and to, and then to get it back in the, into the newspapers. But it was, to be there at that moment in time was was really special and extraordinary. And, uh, you know, and then unfortunately, you know, the Olympics, and especially the hockey tournament, because I was solely focused on that, it was a bit of an anticlimactic, uh, disappointing uh, result. But, um, but yeah, it was... Uh, it was a really fun. Uh, the the run up to the Olympics was was really interesting and uh, professionally developing. I I know I left Moscow uh, in you know December of 1987, thinking if I can do this, there isn't a single thing that I can't do in, in journalism. And I've always felt that you know it was it was the hard the single hardest thing, uh, the hardest event ever to report. It was so complicated. I mean, you could have used, you know, two tin cans and a string and the communication <laughs> systems would have been better. So it was, it was a challenge and we didn't miss any deadlines and we got all the copy in and it ended up being a great story. So, um, that was, that was really important for me. Is that where your friendship with Dave King began? Um, yes. Well, I, I mean, no, I, no, no. Well, I, I'd known him already because of course he coached the 84, yeah. uh, Olympic team. And, and in fact, I mean, I, I remember interviewing him when he was the coach of the Billings Bighorns of the Western Hockey League. And so I was doing a little bit of junior hockey, uh, major junior hockey, in addition to Alberta junior hockey before the Flames came out. And, uh, and and the coaches, you know, they, they were these big personalities, you know, John Chapman down in Lethbridge and Doug Sauter here and Duncan Callum and Brandon. And, and they were larger than life figures. And so then, you know, like, <laughs> here comes Dave Payne, who's this young really cerebral guy he just seemed like a fish out of water but very appealing to me because you know like just a really smart guy that you could talk hockey but 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 he just felt you know talking to him was so different than 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 the, than the you know the coaches that you were dealing with otherwise you know like you know solder and, and and i remember solder solder and uh, and john chapman one time going back and forth you know accusing each other of something and then you know finally doug challenging him to the cowboy fights and i'm thinking to myself this would never happen in Toronto. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I, uh, but, uh, you know, and, and I'm glad you brought up Dave King because I did a book with him, obviously, when yeah. uh, the year that he coached in, in Russia. But I've always believed that he invented something, and, and uh, which is uh, cycling, you know, like, so, you know, 
one of the things that you, you see about the evolution of coaching is like who had the original idea for a concept and then then you know and somebody you know borrows it and builds on it and, and so forth and the first time i ever saw you know what the sedines did so well throughout their career was at a practice in about 1983 and harry wilson and i think it was Gord Donnelly, I'm trying to remember, Pat Flatley and Gord Donnelly, maybe that was the line. Anyway, they're, they're, they're doing this drill in the corner where they're, where they're cycling the puck, right? Of course, I've never seen anything about it. So we had the formal uh, press conference, and I said, what was that thing that you guys were doing there? And he said, well, he said, you know, like it's a, you know, the Soviets always have the puck. And he said, and, and our goal is we, we got to try and, you know, have, have the puck a little bit more. And so he said, you know, he said, I was watching a Leaf practice with Errol Sittler, Earl Thompson, and Lanny McDonald. And, and they were just goofing around after practice. And they were going around the face-off circle and they were dropping the puck. And they were it was like a, a little game that they were playing. And he said, I thought that maybe I could adapt that to a drill because, because this would be a way of, of keeping possession of the puck against a team that had it 80% of the time. So again, 1983. And, uh, and they did. They tried that a little bit. And, and he said the point of these guys was they weren't great skaters, but they were all big and strong. And so if they had the puck, it was hard to get it off of them. And uh, so, you know, the game evolves. And, you know, after a while, you know, there was a period of time in the puck era where everybody cycled the puck down. Well. And, and, you know, you kept thinking, OK, who invented this? And I said, I think Dave King invented it in 1983. And I've told him that I don't I don't believe in, that I've ever seen any anybody else do it before that. And I want him to take credit for it, but he's such a modest guy that he says, well, you know, I don't want to do that. And I said, well, I think you invented it. And, uh, and I think you should tell the world that you did. And if you won't, I will. So, so yeah, I, I, I think he was a pivotal, important figure in the evolution of coaching because, because he, he thought out of the box and he invented stuff in the same way that Claire Drake invented yeah. stuff. When, yeah. when, when hockey, when hockey shifts are three minutes long, you know, Claire Drake had the University of Alberta players playing 40 second shifts and, and conditioning was a factor there. And those teams were really good because they played the, the brand of hockey that they were playing then would be familiar to people now. And sometimes you see those, we were talking about classic games. You see those three minute shifts in those 70s games and, and the pace of play, you know, people, players resting on the ice in NHL games. It's, it's, it's extraordinary to see that, but, but that's the way it was, you know. So somebody along the way invented some of these concepts that we see. And, and, and it's hard sometimes to, to get coaches to take credit for them. You know, I, I'm glad you brought it up. We had Dale Henwood on recently and did a podcast, and he was, of course, an assistant coach with, with those teams, those Olympic teams. And we were just talking about Claire Drake and George Kingston and, and, and Dave King and, and all. Like, it really was a cabal of the, of the modern influencers of hockey here in Alberta, right? It re- there's so much that's traced out of what those guys did, and we're so willing to share, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Yeah, and then I've, you know, like I've I've long been a, a big believer in that. Like I always say that you know the, the the two people I learned the most from at a very early stage when when I knew practically nothing were were Bob Johnson and Dave King. You know, Bob Johnson when he came in here, and more less about tactics with Bob Johnson, but more about motivation, uh, because he was like he was really out of step with what what the current what with what the motivational techniques of the time were. You know, he believed in pride and and positivity and and you know he was sort of Pete Carroll before Pete Carroll came <laughs> along in an era when it was you know like Scotty Bowman and and Mike Keenan and uh, so in terms of of different ways of motivating you know I learned a lot from 
Bob Johnson. In terms of tactics, um, just conversations with Dave King over the years taught me, you know, filled in the gaps of my knowledge, the things that I didn't know, which was a lot. So you mentioned um, Badger. Tell us about the 10-game losing skid, 85-86, and how so- he handled that. The so-called slump. The so-called uh, slump. Yeah, yeah. Well, George Johnson and I, you know, whenever we get together, we, we tackle about that. It was the two of us that were basically there. And in those days, yeah, now when you see interviews with coaches, they're against a backdrop. There's, you know, in-house media. There's a big crowd around them. But Bob Johnson did his post-game interviews in his office, and usually it was for the two beat writers, and that was it. So he would be behind his desk. He would stand up. We would go in there. We would talk, right? So... So the team loses five games before Christmas that year. And, you know, they were real close. There wasn't like, it was just, but, you know, they just didn't find ways of, of winning. And then I think some uh, doubt crept into the, the mindset and, you know, then six, seven, eight, and, and they were getting worse, not getting better. And uh, finally it gets to game 11 and they lose to a very bad Hartford team by a lot, like nine two or something like that. And, and Reggie Lemelin gets blown up and Dean Everson has three goals and, Dave Babbage is playing for the Whalers at the time. And even down there, they're, you know, they're sympathizing because it was one of those things. And George and I go in there finally and, and interview Bob. And before we can ask a question, he starts, because he would often do this, you know, too much is being made of our so-called slump. And George and I looked at each other, and honestly, we were pretty close to, like, falling to the floor. It was really hard to keep a, a professional... It, it stops you in your track. This team has lost 11 games in a row. And before you could even ask a question, and it was, they got hammered that night. He's talking about our so-called slump. And it's like, it's it, it, to this day, I, I can still remember that. And, 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 and George and I were, we were paralyzed. We didn't know what to say after that because we didn't have a question, you know, like in, in your mind, it's like, how can you call that a so-called slump? It's 11 losses in a row. You're getting close to Philadelphia Quakers territory. Right. And, uh, <laughs> And then, of course, the next night they won, and um, you know they gradually worked their way out of it. And you know, a few months later, they're playing for the Stanley Cup, right? So it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would tell you this: I learned a lot about um, not writing a team off um, through that period of time. You know, when uh, St. Louis came back and won last year after being, you know, last in the league uh, on January the the seventh, it reminded me of the of the '86 Flames that n- not everything is necessarily always lost, even at the darkest moments in, in, a, in a team season. And uh, that's, um, you know, that, that affected my thinking all these years later, too. Uh, since I've got you here, uh, and speaking of previous guests on this podcast, we've had Al Coates on, we've had Colin Patterson on, and um, 86 is an interesting um, study for this team and its history and, and what would come later a couple of years. But do you care to opine, because you were covering the team, about the, the the general thought from the the people that were part of the team was that St. Louis cost them the Stanley Cup. The fact yeah. that 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 they went as long as they did and then had no turnaround. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that actually. And uh, and what I particularly remember about it was that um, you know we were in that uh, arena in St. Louis for Game Six, and I think they were leading five two in the third period. And, we had a deadline. Our first deadline was right at the buzzer. So in other words, you had to have a story ready to go, ready to send. And uh, and then once that story was in, they would edit it and put it in the first edition of the paper. And then you had time to do a write through uh, with quotes. And so 
Uh, but this was not a traditional game story because because if they won this game, they would be getting to the Stanley Cup Finals. So an awful lot of what I was writing when they were up 5-2 wasn't so much what was happening in the game. It was what the impact of this victory that they were about clearly about to have would have on uh, on the franchise and getting a chance to play Montreal and Cliff Fletcher and now you know I mean just you know all of the you know the the history that uh, that went with it and then. 5-2 becomes 5-3, and 5-3 becomes 5-4, and 5-4 becomes 5-5. And now I've got nothing because, you know, like if they lose this game, then, you know, all this stuff about going to the Stanley Cup final for the first time in franchise history is wasted. <clears throat> so it's, the game is tied, and, and Jamie McCann almost turns the puck over with less than a minute to go, and, and, and there's a save, and we get overtime. So now in the overtime, I'm frantically writing Flames Lose because I have Flames win ready to go if they, they score the, the deciding goal. But I've got, a, I've got like 12 minutes to write a full <clears throat> worst loss in franchise history and now what kind of a story. And so I'm pounding away at that, pounding away at it, and then you know, looking up when, when play resumes. And then, of course, you know, the, the, you know what happened next. You know, Doug Wickenheiser scores the goal. They lose, and now they go back home and... And I remember, I, I think my lead was something like "now what?" question mark, and then go through the the whole thing, and and yeah, I mean they did, you know, they barely squeaked by in, in Game Seven, and I think that they used up so much emotional energy. So it wasn't just it was just, it wasn't even it was a physical thing, but it was also an emotional thing. They just went to the well so deeply to get out of St. Louis that um, that there wasn't a lot left. Now, having said that, you know, they won the first game in the, in the final and they went to overtime in game two and Brian screwed the score and I think nine seconds in. If that result had been different, if they had taken a 2 nothing lead into Montreal, you know, maybe they would have found another gear. But I think, you know, uh, losing as, as difficult as it was on that, I think it was Victoria Day, um, you know, and going to Montreal 1-1, it just, you know, it wasn't the same team for the remaining games of that series. So, yeah, I do think that there was... Um, a, a, a significant residual effect on the final round from the fact that they had to go seven to take St. Louis out. One more on the eighties and, and it has to do with what, you know, we've talked about on uh, touched on a couple times and that's the battle of Alberta um, might be the greatest rivalry in, in sport. If not the greatest rivalry in the NHL, who we all agree that it's special. You were there, you had a front row seat. Tell me about covering the battle of Alberta, the media side of it. Because, boy, oh, boy, I mean, you, Jim Matheson's still a Titan out there. Terry Jones was covering, uh, you know, uh, here in Calgary. It was you. It was, it was shaky. It was Al. Like, the best of the best. Um, was it us versus them? Were you guys all one happy peer group? How would you describe the media component of the Battle of Alberta? Yeah, I mean, you know, Jim Matheson is one of my best friends in, in, in the business. And, uh, you know, I, I would say the one thing that, you know, that, that I always brought to the to the equation was, I mean, you know, you, you reported on what you saw in front of you. So the team wins, you know, you, you write that they win. The team plays well, you write that they 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 played well. If they lose or they play poorly, you write that too. And so, you know, and then you could do that in the old days. And and you know, if the players were unhappy with you, they'd yell at you in the dressing room the next day, and it would be forgotten. That, that's one of the things that I miss because. Um, because you know, every, you know, whenever I write those columns you were referencing, you know, it makes it all sound like sweetness and light. Well, it wasn't always like that. You know, sometimes you get into these long arguments with players who weren't happy with how you characterized their play in the in the series. But that was never really a, a like a difficult thing for 
me. It was just what you did. And so, you know, I didn't feel any rivalry. And, and what we used to do is we, we would travel with the Oilers when, when the planes got eliminated. And that happened a lot in the early days. And I, it gave me a real good insight into Glenn Sather, into Peter Pocklington, uh, because I was on their, you know, on their charters. You know, Peter Pocklington, in order to defray expenses, would tell Tectathon on the Oiler charter to any media people that were covering the series. And what would happen is that, you know, everybody would fly down to the games, let's say, in Minnesota for the third round. But the only people that would fly back would be me and Jack Fallow from Sports Illustrated. Jack, because he was writing for a weekly, and me, because I only had to do, like, one story off of the game, and, and they wanted it really quick. Whereas, you know, Jim Matheson, Cam Cole, Terry Jones, Dick Chubay, that they have to do stories, sidebars. So they'd be taking a commercial flight the next day, and it'd just be Jack and I on the on the other charter on the flight back. So... Um, got to know him pretty well and, and you know, and, and just sort of, you know, developed relationships with, with those players. I mean, I talk to Wayne Gretzky all the time still, talk to Kevin Lowe all the time still, talk to Glenn Anderson. I mean, Anderson played on the Olympic team in 79, so I've known him for, for a long time. Talk to Paul Coffey all the time. Talk to Grant. I mean, I, I know all those guys and, yeah. and, and yeah. because I was traveling with them too. And it was, so, yeah, yeah it was, I don't know. that It, it was just, it was different, you know, the, but, but there wasn't, you know, some people believe there was a certain partisanship. I never sensed that. You know, like you know, I liked the guys on on Edmonton too. You know, and uh, and thought they were really good hockey players. And and you know, I, I go back to that conversation with Yvonne Lendl. You know, people who liked hockey, people who liked hockey, loved watching those games because they were intense. Um, they were skillful. I mean, you know, like it was great hockey. We always talk about the fights and the you know, in the long, but, but the hockey was really good. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm constantly reminded of how good a goalie Mike Vernon was, you know, like I, I, um, I think that he's um, really underrated and uh, never really got his due in the grand hockey world for, for what he did watching those games in, in 91, him and Fuhrer with those little pads and, and the speed of those games vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, what the rest of the hockey looked like at the time and, and the level of goaltending and the, you know, the athleticism that both those guys demonstrated. Um, I, I think that he's gotten short shrift, to be honest, uh, in terms of his impact as a, as a national hockey league player. Well, I, I've all, I've always said that the, the biggest thing about Mike Vernon and, and the reason why he deserves the accolades. And I think we're both talking about hall of fame recognition is that he won in two different eras of the position. Mm -hmm. He, he ran, yeah. he won in the stand up, and then he won once we moved into the hybrid butterfly style. And and I, I he won Stanley Cups and he won Conn Smythe's in, in both of those eras, which I think needs to stand for something. Yeah. Well, and I think the fact that, you know, like it's funny, I'm, I'm so I'm making the case. We're doing a whole making the case. My view is in hindsight, if he had won in eighty nine instead of Al McKinnis, and he did have two Conn Smythe trophies, yep. that he probably yeah. would be in the Hall of Fame. Because I I do think I served on that committee for a long time. Yep. And I think that uh you know, those types of, of uh, important national awards matter. And, uh, and you know, and uh, you know, you talk internally to those 89 people. I mean, to me, McKinnis Vernon was a, a, a flip of the coin. You don't get out of the first round without Vernon. You might not win the Stanley Cup without uh, McKinnis and, and the way he backed uh, Patrick Waugh off. So there was no wrong decision there, but it could have been Mike Vernon. And if it had been Mike Vernon and he had the 89 Conn Smythe and the 97 Conn Smythe, I think, I think he probably is in the Hall of Fame. We leave the we leave the eighties. What what happened, Eric? What happened um, to the to, to the franchise 
you know, what ha- even to the Oilers. Uh, we talk about the Battle of Alberta and, and how glorious the 80s were. But by the time we got to the end of the 90s, in a way, both organizations couldn't be any further away. Yeah. I don't know what happened. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I, I, I think that um, when Cliff Fletcher left, uh, changed the, the dynamic of, of, of the front office. The one thing about, you know, the Cliff Fletcher's era as, as the manager was that, um, that there were never, there were no contract disputes, never like every single player signed a contract that he was happy with. And, uh, and then, and then that, disappeared, you know, after he, after he moved on. And, and now all of a sudden, you know, you know, squabbling with Doug Gilmore and they're squabbling with, uh, with Bill Neuendijk. And, um, you know, a lot of decisions were made based on the fact that they, they didn't want to pay players what they thought were the, you know, you know, reasonable compensation. And, uh, and um, I think that they should have tried harder to keep those, those teams together. You know, uh, I'm, I'm writing today uh, about the biggest mistake Chicago made. This is in conjunction with the John McDonough firing, but the biggest mistake Chicago made in 2017 was overreacting to a playoff loss. You know, they were the first place team in the conference and the first place team in the division, and they got upset by Nashville. Guess what? That happens. You don't have to trade Artemi Panarin. You don't have to trade Nicholas Shamsen. You don't have to move two core pieces out for players that aren't core pieces, you know, or two guys that were difference makers on the team for players that aren't difference makers. And that happened here. You know, like the new and trade, you know, worked out phenomenally well in the end because again, they came in and, and, and was a star, but they needed to keep that work harder to keep that team together. And they could have, and they didn't. And it just spiraled out, out of control after that. Just to wrap up a couple more to wrap up, but one has to do with you professionally. You would evolve, evolve, maybe the wrong word, but advance, however you want to determine from being a beat writer to a national writer. Did, was that the goal all along for you, or, or did you come to that? Do you enjoy that? Well, so half, halfway through my time at the Herald, um, I started to do more national stuff anyway. Yeah. So uh, my kids came along. Um, you know, uh, we had a, a real good young reporter at the at the Herald named Mike Board, who still runs the lacrosse team in mm-hmm. town for the, for the Flames. And uh, I just didn't want to travel as much because I, I had a young family at home. And so... Well, Mike and I agreed to start splitting the travel, and uh, and in the meantime, because I wasn't doing as much day-to-day flame stuff, I was I was doing more national stuff. So I had started that already when I was at the, the Herald, and then, in, you know, in sort of November of 1999, uh, the Calgary Herald went on strike. So I walked a picket line for eight months, and in uh, during that period of time of walking the 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift on a cold, wintry Calgary. Um, eight months, um, I just sort of came to the conclusion that I was probably ready for something new. I'd gone 20 years there, and uh, I was I was ready to try something new. So when the strike ended, I had three job offers, uh, one from the Hockey News, one from the Toronto Sun, and one from the Globe and Mail to write an online column for them. And, uh, and the Globe and Mail's um, pushed or pitched to me was that, uh, you know, Stephen Brunt was the, the best columnist in, in the country and he was good at a 99% of the sports that he wrote about, but he didn't feel comfortable writing about hockey. So they wanted a distinctive hockey voice. And was I interested in doing that? So I to work for the national newspaper to write a hockey column for them and to stay in, in Calgary. I mean, it was, it was an opportunity that I, I, I just couldn't get over what a good opportunity it was. And the other jobs, you know, Scott Morrison, good friend of mine, you know, was basically, you know, helping me out and was going to bring me to Toronto to cover the Leafs or and Steve Dryden at the Hockey News was 
prepared to have me be their columnist because they'd lost, I think they were in the process of or already lost Bob McKenzie full-time to TSN. So I had three really good options, but the one that appealed to me the most was the was the one from the Globe and Mail. But it really was more of a sort of at a, just at a, at a point in my life. There was the strike. There was the 20 years in at, at the Herald. There was the idea that if I was going to pivot, this was the an opportunity to do it. And it turned out to be the right choice. It just absolutely worked out the extremely, you know, right place, right time for me. When you look back, Eric, what's the biggest change in in your professional world, in your professional life? I mean, you're not done yet, but you have the, the you know, I think you have the ability to look back with some great perspective. But you look back, what is, what's been the biggest change in sport? Well, you know, in sport or in the relationships with athletes, like in, in terms of sport, I mean, I, like to me, um, the game is, you know, the game of hockey specifically is is overcoached. Um, I, I mean, I, I find it entertaining on on some levels, but I miss the mistakes. You know, mm-hmm. so if you watch games of of, of the 1980s, the, you know, the best players in the world still made a lot of mistakes, and and it was just more fun. You know, and 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 I, I just I, I think a little bit of the fun seems to have been leached out of the game right now. And I think it's because, you know, in order to succeed at the National Hockey League level, you have to be a true professional. The type of, you know, players that used to come to training camp to get in show. I mean, I, I was at the Flames' first training camp. And honestly, Rob, there were people that couldn't run two miles without <laughs> walking. Like, I, like I, I, you know, I, 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 I could outrun players that were going to a pro camp that that's how it was and but you know but that created some mismatches on the ice and when someone like Jamie Hislop came along who was like the fittest person on earth you know they stood out I mean you know his talent level he, he would be the first to admit probably wasn't that high but he accomplished what he accomplished in the NHL because of fitness so um so there was a, like a, a a goofier element almost to, to the game you know goofier personalities um, just not as strident about every single day doing the right thing every single moment. And so that that's disappeared from the game. So, you know, on the one hand, it's faster than it's ever been. Everybody can shoot the puck. There were players that couldn't turn, you know, Sasha Lakovic could turn one leg, but not really the other, you know. I mean, it was, you know, it was it was just different. But but I, I would say it was a, a bit more fun. And, and I, I don't know that it's as much fun as it as it used to be. And I'm not sure that it can ever get back to because the competition for those jobs is so great. The money is so big. Those players, you know, were making NHL salaries, but, you know, like they weren't making that much more than the normal person. Most of those guys on the 1980s team, you know, they ended up having to work for a living after their careers ended. They didn't make, you know, walk away uh, money like like everybody does in the NHL today. So, um so yeah, I, you know, I kind of miss that, you know, the, the fun part of it. But I also don't know how you get that stuff back in the bottle. I think it's probably impossible to even imagine that it could happen. What about your 42 years in this city? How has the city changed? Well, it's grown, you know, exponentially. Like I, so I, I, I lived in Coach Hill when Coach Hill was like, a, it felt like a settlement, you know, like 50 houses. And the reason was because I was covering skiing, I wanted to be on the western outskirts of town so that if I had to get up to the mountains really quickly, I could. And so there was nothing out there, you know, and then eventually Strathcona came and they built further down the hill. And, you know, I still live on the west side, but you can't even imagine that there were acreages in those days and deer in the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just grown. But it's still a manageable size city. And Colin Patterson and I have had that conversation because we grew up in Toronto and Toronto, to me, became too big. 
And so the Calgary of today reminds me of the Toronto that I grew up in. You know, the Toronto was under 2 million people at the time. It seemed manageable. If you were an East End kid, you know, you went downtown, you probably didn't cross Young Street very often. The city was sort of divided between the East and the West Side, but it felt manageable. Now Toronto feels completely out of control. Calgary still feels manageable to me. So, you know, as much as, you know, you, you miss a little bit of that sort of small town feel that it had in the late 70s, it still seems like a city that's you know, in control in terms of its population. And, uh, and I still love the West side. The last question I have for you is the last question I have for all of my guests on this very podcast. And I'm not going to give you parameters. You answer it any way you feel you wish to answer it. Um, but I want you, Eric Dehatchek to give me your hidden Calgary gem. <laughs> hidden Calgary gem. Yep. Huh? Hidden Calgary gem, hidden Calgary. So I can't use Peter's. You can use you can use whatever you want. The idea is that when we come out of this, we want people to, you know, this is supposed to be a distraction so people don't get caught up in the day-to-day, and we want to give them a list of things that they should maybe look forward to when, when it's all said and done. So the parameters are yours. Okay. Well, here's what I would tell you. I, I, I remember reading about Peter's Drive, and I think I want to say in the Star Weekly magazine as a kid growing up. So, but, you know, it, it had already been established, and it was known outside the city. And so I've never lived anywhere near where Peter's is, but I've always known where it was. And the number of times where, you know, like you're having a, like a down day or, or just a day where you need something to brighten up your day. It's like, I'm driving to Peter's, you know, and then you either get in the drive or I, I always park in the, in the lot now and just go to the, the takeout window and I get my order and I always order more because I want to bring the onion ring home for a different day. And, uh, and you sit outside and you have a burger and fries and a Coke and the world seems great, you know? So I don't think Peter's is a hidden gem. I think everybody knows where it is and, and what it means. But, but that's, you know, like at that, you know, when you're having one of those days where you need something to, to brighten your mood, that's one of the things that I sometimes do. I love it. Um, thank you. I, I miss our our visits. I do. This was so much fun for me. Um, it was great to get you in long form. I, I prefer Eric to have a check in long form. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Eric. Okay, my pleasure, Rob. That right there, ladies and gentlemen, is my friend Eric to uh, you can catch him at The Athletic, used to be at The Herald, used to be uh, Ho- Hockey Night in Canada. I mean, he's done it all. Um, and you heard there, uh, very passionate, um, great storyteller. Um, and it's been interesting, it was interesting to, to kind of view the growth of this city in his eyes uh, from coming here in 1978 to what it's become now. So uh, always a pleasure to spend some time with your friends. And in this case, Eric Dehatchek is a very good friend. Catch him at The Athletic. Uh, you can catch this podcast at uh, Apple I, uh, Podcasts. I was going to say Apple iTunes, but it, it's Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe or go to sportcalgary.ca slash podcast and you can check out previous guests. We have had a ton of them. Thanks to Eric, and thanks to everybody at sportcalgary.ca for putting a ton of effort into this particular podcast. Really appreciate it. We will see you soon. We will welcome you with open arms to yet another conversation with somebody from our great city talking about sports. This has been the original Six Feet Conversation Podcast at sportcalgary.ca.